Hi there. This is Neil Satin, the host of Relationship Alive. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning into the podcast and to let you know you are not alone. In fact, there are thousands of other people listening. And so I created a spot on Facebook called the Relationship Alive Community, where we can actually gather to talk more about the topics covered here on the Relationship Alive podcast. Every so often, I'll even throw in a special offer or two as well. You can search for the Relationship Alive Community on Facebook or text the word TOGETHER to the number 33444 and I'll send you a link to take you right to the community on Facebook. Looking forward to seeing you there. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. If you've listened to any of the earlier episodes, then you've probably gathered that an essential part of being in relationship is the path that it offers to you to become more fully who you're meant to be in the world and to do the healing required, both the inner healing as well as what's only possible in partnership with another person. On today's show, we're going to cover some essential skills so that you and your partner can create a solid foundation for this healing journey into conscious relationship together. Today's guests are none other than Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, authors of Getting the Love You Want, which offers a step-by-step path for you and your partner to attain a more loving, supportive, and satisfying relationship. In this conversation, you're going to hear exactly how their system of conscious relationship works and come to a deeper understanding of what's possible in relationship. You'll also learn about their Imago Dialogue, also known as Safe Conversations, which is a process that you can use in your partnership or in any dialogue, really, to ensure clear communication that actually gets you somewhere. Harville and Helen have also generously offered a free signed copy of their book, Getting the Love You Want, to a lucky listener. All you have to do is download the show guide at neilsatin.com slash imago, which is spelled I-M-A-G-O, or text the word PASSION to the number 33444 and follow the instructions to qualify. Helen LaKelly Hunt and Harville Hendricks, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Thank you for having us. We're honored to be here. Absolutely. Well, um, perhaps a great place to start would be to talk about one of the central concepts in your work, which is imago, if I'm saying that correctly. And I'm wondering if you can just talk briefly about what is your imago match? What does that even mean? And, And how is it relevant in terms of how we choose partners and what the purpose of relationship actually is in your model for conscious relationships. Um, okay, Helen, shall I do that? Or you want to? Yes. Okay. yes, you dive in. All right. So imago is the uh, Latin word for image, Latin word for the English word image. And what image uh, refers to is a construction of memories um, in our um hippocampus and in the amygdala, parts of the brain, uh, memories that are created by early interaction with caretakers. 
and that includes uh, usually for most people parents, but might include uh, anyone else, like a grandfather or a maid or somebody who was really there shaping one's experience in early childhood. So this constellation of memories <clears throat> really uh, uh, results in a configuration of a type of person, uh, which is um, an, an impression of these caretakers, uh, all uh, sort of reduced into one particular image or split into two. But this image is in the mind. It's uh, started in childhood. It is not in our awareness. We don't know it's there. But in uh, late adolescence, when we began our search and find mission for an adult life partner, this image guides us toward someone whose personality traits are similar to, the, um, to this uh, condensation of personality traits of our early childhood caretakers. And what's interesting about that is that the traits that were most connected to our childhood frustrations, wounds, needs not met, those traits in the parents, like uh, a parent not being available, a parent being intrusive, a parent uh, being punitive, a parent ignoring, a parent whose attention you couldn't get, a parent who was unreliable, all of the things that a child needs to survive those needs not met are still alive in the child's unconscious mind. And those needs are also connected in their mind to somebody like the parents. So the unconscious mind, without our knowing it, picks somebody in adulthood who's similar to our caretakers, and especially somebody who has the traits that our caretakers had that are similar to the, to the traits in our caretakers where we didn't get our needs met. So when you fall in love, you fall in love with somebody who will have the worst traits of all your caretakers combined. And when you fall in love with that person, you'll move to them like a moth to the flame. And the unconscious mind operates out, apparently out of the injunction that you have to get the needs met in adulthood from somebody similar, from the person with whom they didn't get met, or from somebody who is um, similar. So we call it a reasonable facsimile. Now, the reason this happens in adulthood is because those needs in the unconscious mind are not attached to memory or often not even attached to specific events. They can be emotional memories. And since they're not attached to events, they are timeless. So when you meet somebody in adulthood, something is triggered in the mind that's really rooted in the past, but is experienced in the present as if it were all happening in the present. So that's the Imago match. You'll find somebody in adulthood whose personality traits are similar to a configuration of traits of your caretakers in childhood. And those traits will include traits that were experienced as negative uh, by the child around their need satisfaction and will have the positive traits, that is, some of the needs that were met. So that's the basis of an Imago match. And one thing that I think is fascinating is that we're when you first are drawn to a person, you're going to be drawn to all of those positive qualities and think this person is is my my savior, my ideal complement in the world. And it's not until later that um, that our awareness of the negative aspects actually comes into focus. 
And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about why that happens. Um, well, I, what, our, our view of that is that when you have that falling in love experience, that we have two channels of perception. One is conscious, one is unconscious. And the unconscious one is what reads the traits that are similar to the caretakers. And that's what triggers the endorphin or dopamine high, which is a chemical uh, change in the blood. Now, if this person uh, at the conscious level has traits that match our conscious image of the kind of person we want, then we will move toward them. If they don't have those traits, like the socioeconomically, educationally, or value system-wise, they may not fit. You may let the impression go, uh, you know, the pull. But the pull is not to the positive traits. The pull is an unconscious pull toward, um, it kind of sucks that it's true, but toward the negative traits. Because the needs are pressing for satisfaction, and the unconscious mind has decided that those needs have to be met by somebody similar to the people with whom they were frustrated. In other words, you got to get what you didn't get in childhood from some from the person who's similar to the person in childhood who should have given it to you. But at the, at the conscious level, you're just experiencing this intense emotional attraction. And then there are conscious features, like they're the right height, they look the right way, socioeconomically they fit. And sometimes they don't. People fall in love with somebody and they don't, they don't fit much conscious stuff, but the emotion is so intense that they move toward them anyway. And have, what's your experience with people trying to hack around this, so to speak, where they, they say, actually, okay, I know exactly what the needs are, and I'm just going to find someone who shows up with those those traits. Like I, I wasn't paid attention to as a kid, so I'm going to find a very attentive, loving partner, and and skip over this whole amago thing. Uh, I, I think I could chime in. I could think I could I could chime in. Harville, is that okay? Go. So yeah, I mean, I think Harville's laughter is the answer because that's what we're all looking for—someone who we think is compatible, and that's how the romantic phase feels. And I think the thing I would mention to Harville's eloquent analysis or description of the uh, Imago is that um, I think what got him pursuing this question is that in almost all cases, the marriage of our dreams wakes up one morning and we're in a nightmare. Like it happens to almost every relationship. And so why is that? And um, I think my excitement um, in standing beside Harville and helping other couples is that we reframe um, the idea that if you're in a, the right marriage, um, you're having a conflict-free relationship. We think every relationship will experience that disillusionment after a while and so we have rebranded the concept of conflict. We, instead of conflict as being a sign that maybe you married the wrong person, we see and encourage our couples to think of conflict as growth trying to happen, something new trying to emerge in the relationship that hadn't been there before, uh, some sort of transformation, and hold conflict with curiosity. 
my little phrase is, I think when conflict happens, God's trying to show up. Um, but, but something's going on that if you can hold conflict well, you can move through it to a stage in your relationship that's better than ever. And a phrase we use is that your partner and what they need from you is actually a blueprint for your own growth. That, that what your partner is calling from you that you unconsciously did not think, that, that, that unconsciously um, they needed to ask you to do, and they needed to ask you because you can't do it. <laughs> and so you've unconsciously married them to ask you to develop this skill which you don't have. Um, your partner and what they're asking of you, it, it may seem very, very hard, but held in the right way, um, learning to navigate those areas grows a part of you that contributes to you being um, a fuller human being and the relationship being then joyful. Yeah, I, I want to just clarify that for a moment just for everyone listening that what I'm understanding you to be saying is that let's say um, you've chosen me as a partner and I don't I don't show up very well. I I withdraw in in my relation in our relationship. And so you and what you really want from me is to be really expressive and loving. And so initially, you know, without um without the work that you describe in getting the love you want, I might say, well that's just I can't do that for you. That's not me. But in your work what I'm understanding is that it's there's this idea that those parts of ourselves that are not us may actually represent and that our partners are calling for may represent places where we're actually shut off in ourselves and where our partners are shut off in themselves and that their request to draw it forth from us gives us that opportunity to grow in a way that's it's actually not not necessarily learning something new. It's more like rediscovering something, a part of you that was there all along, but that got suppressed by your experiences in childhood. Right. And Neil, when you're uh, role-playing that with me, like going, I'm sorry, I don't do inner emotions. Excuse me, leave me alone. I'm, you know, I don't do that. And I, I was already expressive. I can't do anymore. You sounded just like Harville. <laughs> Just like him. And so what I had to do, I mean, at first I thought, well, what? Aren't you passionate? Like, don't you care? And I really needed him to do that, I thought. I mean, that's what I would say. But no, I need you to show me some you know, more affection. And in learning to accept Harville for who he is, I had to become more like Harville. I needed to contain my energy. And the more I contained my energy and found something to do while I wish while I was wishing he would be expressive but uh, giving up or, or or deciding to not push him to be who he wasn't if I learned to contain myself wow was he grateful oh my goodness he was so grateful and he would he would emerge and go thank you so much for accepting me for who I am and he became so passionate so there's some um, uh, oscillatory process that is beautifully captured in the Imago theory. 
Yeah, and that's that's exactly the um, the thing we talk about. Um, that when, um, and in fact, the, the feeling thing is a part of mine and Helen's own experience that the I then have to uh, show up. If Helen constrains her um, emotions, I need to become more expressive. And the reason that is not becoming somebody else, uh, but actually becoming a more of who you are is because um, my constraint on emotion was adaptive in childhood. It helped me function. Helen's uh, expressiveness in childhood was, was an adaptation to her family where she needed to be expressive. I needed to be quiet. But both expression and constraint are a part of our psychoneural systems. And we usually in childhood, most people in childhood, have to work on one side or the other of that street of being either quiet and observe things and uh, calculate or being expressive, importuning and so forth. So we don't get to develop the full psychoneural system. So we will then uh, experiencing that you know, gap in ourselves, that undeveloped part, we'll fall in love with somebody who carries the part of us we didn't develop. Um, and that'll be part of the attraction. Like I'm attracted to Helen's expressiveness. Then we get married, uh, it becomes a problem for me um, because it's, uh, it's a part of me that I had to shut down that didn't work for me. So I get anxious when she's expressive that not only is it you know, scary to me, but it's also that um, other people won't like her expressiveness. So I kind of get her to calm down so that you know, other people will feel more comfortable with her. But once we finally got clear that this is the way life uh, or the unconscious mind sets up relationships, then we have to move toward, and it used to just sound terrible, we have to move toward becoming like that part of our partner that we are least attracted to. And when we do that, we start developing in ourselves a part of ourselves that did not evolve in childhood so that the mutual stretching toward each other evolves each of us into a fuller self. And we have then have a relationship in which we each carry both constraint and expressiveness and do not have to borrow it nor react to it in the other person. And we call that incompatibility. We could say that incompatibility is the grounds for a great relationship. And that compatible people simply don't get married because there's no energy tension of the opposites incompatibility. The tension of the opposites is in incompatibility and therefore what everybody unconsciously looks for is an incompatible partner while consciously they're looking for a compatible partner. So it's a kind of complicated process. So I guess just to round out this part of our conversation, the, the question that comes up for me is how do you prevent it from from becoming its shadow where like, how would someone know if they're in a relationship that has a, a lot of conflict? Like, let's say, um, Oh, I remember Helen talking about how conflict that means God's trying to speak through us. I wonder what God is saying versus like, Oh my goodness. Like this relationship really is, doesn't have the potential to be a conscious growth oriented thriving partnership of two 
incompatibles. So how would someone know if they're on the other end of the spectrum? Um, you want to go with that, Helen? Well, I have an answer. So, uh, okay. So we believe that if any couple experiences, uh, experiences a strong attraction to each other, um, to the extent that they feel like they might want to become partners or married, that um, that they are destined to stay together, <laughs> and they should, if at all possible, because with with the right relational processes, they can handle then any difficulty that comes up. So, if the attraction was ever really strong. Um, they can work through anything. I mean, chemical dependency, an affair, they can work it out. Yeah, and I think the, um, to, the, the response to your question, when does it become a dark situation? Uh, and, and I absolutely agree with Helen, and that it requires some uh, mutual work to work it all out. So you know you're in a relationship that won't work if the person you're with sees everything as your fault. They don't uh, have any willingness to look at any contribution they make to the conflict, and they blame it all on you. And there's no, no mediation of that or remediation of that. There's just no awareness, and it's all kind of one-sided, and you're the only one who has to change. That That's a relationship in which growth can't happen because you need uh, two horses pulling the same wagon with some awareness about uh, what's going on. And our, our, one of our big uh, commitments is to educate uh, the public or the culture about the dynamics of relationship because the culture does not have embedded in its stories this information that the, um, the, the it has opposites attract, but it doesn't have incompatibility as the grounds for a great marriage, but that that requires both people stretching toward the center uh, and learning skills that enable each of them to be present to each other in a way that's healing. That's just not in the culture. It's more it's about me or it's about you, my needs, your needs, uh, rather than about our relationship being the centerpiece of our work together. And, and I, I agree with you, Harville. I agree with you. Um, but even that couple where one won't work and the other can uh, or wants to, the person who wants to, instead of coaching their partner, their resistant partner, and what their partner needs to do to change, they can instead look for um, a time when their birthday is approaching or um, an end of the year holiday and our Valentine's Day and say, honey, instead of giving each other a present, why don't we go? I'd really like what I would like as a gift is to go to a workshop. And there are so many good workshops on marriage and um um, we certainly have one, but many of your guests have this. And I think it's sort of like what Harville just said. The culture doesn't know you need to get away and um, focus on um, nurturing one's relationship um, and creating a spa experience for your relationship. And it's sort of like realizing 
that um, that twice a year we know we need to go to the dentist for that teeth cleaning that that's what keeps your teeth strong as opposed to years ago when people went to the dentist when they had when their teeth were rotting and falling out that that's you know they waited until there was a serious problem it's John Gottman who says that people wait too late to go for help and they should he said um, the average time it takes um, someone to call the doctor when they have a pain in their chest is four hours the average time it takes a couple to pick up the phone and call the doctor when there's a terrible pain in their marriage is seven years. People wait too long to go for help. So I like that um, encouragement to to look for friendly ways to enlist your partner if you have a, a reluctant partner. And you offer several examples in your book, Getting the Love You Want, of people who even showed up to your workshops pretty much assuming that they were done and they were just going through the motions and yet having really uh, profoundly transformative experiences. So um, hopefully um, more and more people that are listening to this podcast are having the experience of listening with a partner or um, ex or also finding their own path to change, which might arouse the curiosity in their partner. Like, oh, what's so what's what's going on here this feels a little different and i'm reminded of one thing that you wrote in your book about um how instead of trying focusing on trying to find the right partner it's your um prescription is to try to be the right partner right try to be the right partner and and i think that should be emphasized to people who are listening is that um that in addition to what helen is saying about finding uh, places to go to together that uh, sometimes that we have found in the past that uh, the other person was really reluctant to do anything. So, and the, and the partner who, who is, um, um, who looks like the committed partner tends to put a lot of pressure on their partner to change, not knowing that that's really counterproductive. So that what we encourage the partner who's interested in a better relationship to do is to be the partner that they wish their partner were. That is to exhibit positive things like appreciations for their partner or do caring behaviors or uh, engage with uh, anything that makes the relationship safe with the other partner. And like you were saying, if, if there's some sort of change uh, in the, in the in, in motivated partner, the unmotivated partner is going to become uh, curious. The other danger is that they might also become anxious and exit. Uh, we find that sometimes happens if there's too much positive change. There's like they can't handle it. So you, you want to regulate that. But one partner can change the way they interact with a reluctant partner. And generally that can lead to motivation toward curiosity about what is going on and uh, and then that can lead to a conversation that may then lead to both going to get resources. Uh, but changes can occur. No changes can occur if you always do the same thing. Changes can occur if somebody will decide to do something different, as long as that difference is positive. 
So I'd like to take a moment and and cover some of the really practical and amazing exercises that you offer in getting the love you want. And I know that you you teach many of these in your workshops as well, so that people listening can have a, a chance to, to get a feel for what you're talking about. Um, the first thing that comes to mind, just given our initial plunge into Imago, would be um, maybe something along the lines of the Imago workup or a way that someone could could get a, a bird's eye view into what they what that actually means for them practically, what what character traits they're they've drawn out in their partner. Well, uh, Helen, you want to go with that or shall I do that? Um, you can go ahead. Uh, well, I have two things in mind, Helen, that I think we could respond to, which is the what what couples need to what practices couples need to learn, and what information they need to get. And those are two different things, but they're very much tied together. So why don't I talk about the information, and maybe then you talk about the the practices. Great, or we can share those uh, if you want to. The information uh, in the in the book. Um, Getting All of You Want, in the back of the book, uh, there's a, uh, a uh, information gathering process that helps people identify traits in their caretakers that, um, and, uh, that uh, they remember from childhood, frustrations they had, and needs that came out of those frustrations. And if a couple will together fill out those forms, what they will discover is how they were both uh, wounded in childhood. And what most couples discover is that their wounds are very similar from childhood. And the value of that is that it begin, it's, it's usually totally new, to, and totally new to partners, that there's a similarity in the wounding. And what that leads to is some curiosity and empathy. And that's the beginning of the healing process itself, simply to move toward uh, away from a judgmental toward an empathic response uh, to the partner. The second thing they learn when they do those exercises is that each uh, one adapted to childhood in an opposite way. Similar wound, opposite adaptation. The opposite adaptations are one adapted by being more expressive, showing more energy, making more noise. The other one adapted by shutting down. We call them the hailstorm and the turtle. Hailstorm is very expressive. The turtle is very constrained. And those two people are drawn to each other for reasons we talked about earlier. So when you look at your relationship and you say, gosh, we're both dealing with, say, abandonment issues or intrusive issues, and we're dealing with it in opposite ways in our relationship, then that also helps you to understand you with the right person to produce optimal and maximum growth for each other. And what that also then leads to is to the question, so if that's the need, if that was the wound, this is the need, this is the adaptation, how do we operationalize that need in our adult lives? And uh, Helen, I think you ought to pick up there and talk about the, the practice process of safe conversation. Um, you mean the... Um safe conversation dialogue and then the other two that follow right the three practices that we now recommend so yeah we um we sort of um 
lasered the theory. Uh, it's so much fun living with Harvel because the complexity that was there in our early thinking and um, and he, and then the architecture back then, and he's the main architecture architect, I should say, um, was more complex. And Harvel's mind keeps lasering it towards simplicity. And we think that um, there are three things that can help any relationship thrive. Um, if implemented in that relationship. And the first is the safe conversation process itself, the dialogue process, the three steps of um, mirroring, validation, and empathy. And just that on-ramp of deciding who is the sender and who is the receiver, oh my goodness, just just a couple agreeing to take turns talking is like this tremendous step forward for most couples. Um, and then the person sending, well, anyone can send, we encourage a sender to use, quote, sender responsibility. That is, send in a way that is succinct enough so that it lands well on their partner and said in a way that arouses interest in their partner instead of it's it being shaming or blaming for their partner. So the receiver mirrors back and you, you know, I'm sure if you've tried this, Neil, you can't believe how hard it is to mirror accurately. You think you've heard your partner, but then you mirror them and they go, that's not what I said. <laughs> so, um, so mirroring teaches a person to listen well, then you move into validation. Well, that makes sense. And then there's the um, practicing how their partner might be feeling as they're talking to you. Um, what is the feeling they have as they say the words they did? So um, imagining that their partner might be feeling a certain way and then checking that out with their partner. So those are the three steps of the safe conversation process. Um, and we use the word safe conversation if it's education and imago dialogue if it's more of a therapy setting. Um, but the two other things that we believe if a, a couple will just do these two other things, they can really have a thriving relationship. And that is the commitment to zero negativity, um, which sounds scarier than it is. Um, we ask every couple to make that commitment to um, to realizing that their relationship is not just the two people, it's the two people and the space between them. And to have a good relationship, they need to keep the space between them safe. And to keep it safe, they can't bring a negative energy into the relationship or their partner will put up their defenses. Um, and so over time, you don't even live with your partner, you, you live with their defenses and your poor partner's hiding behind a wall that they've had to put up because you've been like me, I kept going, Harville, you need to be more emotional. Well, Harville puts up a defense. So, um, Two people can make a commitment to zero negativity. 
they practice trying to talk to each other in a way that lands more safe. And it's not what you say to your partner, it's how you say it. You can bring up your issues with your partner, but in a way that doesn't land so negatively. So when we recommend zero negativity, it's not that you can't tell your partner how you feel. It's that you can learn to say things in a respectful way, with a respectful tone of voice, a gracious look in your eye, instead of that sense of entitlement or shame, blame, and criticism. And the last thing, the third, is to schedule fun (laughs) and schedule pleasure into the relationship. Um, Both Harville and I are really delightful people if you would meet us. And especially, Neil, if you say something funny, Harville and I will laugh and then we'll say something funny because we'll respond if someone else is funny. But alone, we're both introverts and we're both very serious. And um, I, I think it was me, Harville, that woke up one day and I just realized that the two of us are fun impaired. Like we do not know how to have fun. We're just both so serious minded. And our marriage was you know, taking a toll as a result. And we had to schedule uh, bringing uh, like joke books into our relationship or putting on Groucho Marx glasses and scheduling activities that were joyful. Uh, Every night before going to bed, we decided to give each other three appreciations, which we've done the last 15 years. We haven't skipped one night, even if we were in different cities. And bringing in um, positive energy is a way of keeping that safe, that uh, space between two people more safe so they can connect. Yeah, and one of the things I'd like to add to this is that this uh, process um, serendipitously began for Helen and me when we were uh, dating. In fact, in our first few weeks of dating, we had, we were very intensely engaged with each other. And so, and we didn't have any skills back in those days to know how to talk. So we were having a pretty intense, heated conversation uh, one time, where I remember it was in Helen's uh, living room. She was uh, where, where we had, uh, actually we hadn't even formally started dating, had we, Helen? We were kind of friends uh, uh, sharing some things that finally led to dating. But we were having this knockdown, drag out conversation. And Helen stopped me and said, I have an idea. Let one of us talk and the other one listen. And so that stopped the uh, back and forth, and we did that, and it was so calming that both of us were struck by it, so that we began then to use it with couples. And I took it to the clinic, and uh, just focused on on the conversation itself, not on the content, but on the tone and quality of the conversation, and that eventually evolved into what we now call dialogue where we, as what Helen just said, where it became a structure of mirroring with its three levels and validation and empathy. So Helen uh, serendipitously invented the dialogue process, which we now call safe conversation in our Dallas work in, uh, or in, uh, in relationship education work about what Helen does about 35 years ago. I guess so. And that has become the 
major intervention for all imago therapists and for all educational courses. That if people can learn how to have a conversation that's safe, then <clears throat> something happens that cannot happen without that safety. And which is that the relationship thrives because when you're safe, everything works. And when you're not safe but anxious, nothing works except your defenses. Yeah, the um, uh, all all those three things seem so powerful to me. Um, scheduling fun, and I'm reminded also of the the re-romanticizing uh, exercise that you talk about in your book. Um, committing to zero negativity and finding ways if you're about to be negative to stop yourself and figure out, well, what am I really trying to, what's my request? Or, I mean, we could talk, I'm sure at length about strategies for, for what to do when you, when you find that you're about to do something negative or blame your partner for something. Um, and in terms of the conversation, the Imago dialogue, I'd love to just take one quick minute and just say, just to clarify the steps. So the first step is, well, the very beginning, decide who's talking and who's listening, sender and receiver. And then um, the, the sender delivers a message and tries to own it as much as possible. So talk in an I statement when, when you do such and such, I feel blah, blah, versus like you're a bastard or <laughs> you're always late or you never want to have sex or what, you know, try to own what you're actually trying to communicate. And then the listener or the receiver just mirrors that back and then asks, did I get it? Did, did I actually hear you right? And, and it may take a few iterations to actually to get it right. And then the next step is you, you called it validation. And I just want to make it clear for everyone listening that that's the sense that as the listener, what you're, what the person talking has expressed to you actually makes sense. Like the idea is now that you can see it the way they see it, now that they're actually, you're seeing what they're actually communicating, they're not crazy actually in, in what they're trying to get across to you. They're in their world what they're saying makes perfect sense. And that's, that's the validation step. And then finally, the empathy step is like the listener saying, okay, and I see how if you are, if this is your experience, are you feeling this? Or you must be feeling something like this. And that gives you a chance to really get at the, the nitty gritty of what the, the sender was actually feeling behind what they were saying. Did I get that right? I, I, absolutely. That's, um, we should put you on the circuit. That's, 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 that's great. That's perfectly done. There were, there were two things. Uh, I think you said it, but I would just emphasize that when you do say that makes sense to your partner, it doesn't mean you agree with their point of view. As you said, Neil, it's, it's saying, well, the way you're looking at it, well, yeah, I could see that makes sense, and uh, and don't say it sarcastically. But it's it's you know a lot of um, couples have trouble with validating, thinking it's agreement, and you can have a different position, but just see see the sense that your partner is making. And when you tell them that makes sense, they just relax in your presence, and then they're more open to you having a different point of view. 
But the, the, the last thing I'll mention that Harville and I often emphasize is after the mirror and after did I get it is a phrase we consider the magic phrase. Yes, you've listened to your partner. Yes, you've mirrored them. Yes, you, um, you've, you've checked it out and they've agreed that you got it. If you add one more little phrase right there, um, it can be so meaningful your, to your partner. And the phrase is, is there more you'd like to say? And give your, when you say, is there more, that's just something they don't often hear in this fast-paced society where no one has time to say, is there more <laughs> to someone else who's talking? Like mm. most of us are with someone and then they fit, you know, if they are talking, the spirit is, well, are you done yet? Um, because I have something I want to add to what you said, or I have an improvement on what you said, or a correction about what you said. And when you just mirror and then say, did I get it? Uh, then to say, is there more? We find that the the sender then suddenly trust the whole process and can open up and um, and suddenly feel so much more safe in your presence. Mm, yeah, and it seems like that would allow you to then that safety that you've created in that direction allows you to switch directions where the the sender becomes listener and but you've you've created that spirit of safety and understanding that allows both people to be heard then. Yes, and you're modeling for them to say is there more because that that now is an official part of the three-step process. And uh so make sure that you say it because your partner should be saying that too. <laughs> Well, I'm going to resist the temptation right now to say, is there more? Because I know there's a lot more that we could talk about. And, and I hope you'll consider coming back on the show at some point. Um, I wanted to just thank you both for one thing, for your offer to give a lucky listener a signed copy of Getting the Love You Want. And if you're the way that you can qualify for that is to download the show guide at neilsatin.com slash imago which is spelled i-m-a-g-o or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and just follow the instructions and that will qualify you for the giveaway so thank you so much for your generosity and offering that to a lucky listener and um and finally i just want to express some gratitude for the amazing work that you're doing um I know that you mentioned Safe Conversations and your website, safeconversations.org, talks about the uh, project that you have going in Dallas. I don't know. Do you have a moment to chat about it or are we? We're at, yes. Okay. I think we can say something about that. Um, and Helen, let me say something and then you, you chime in. Absolutely. Absolutely. You start. I'll be uh, succinct about it. Uh, some about seven years ago, we decided to expand our work from therapy into relationship education. And we uh, got together with a group of our colleagues across the country um, that you probably also know, John Gottman, Dan Siegel, Ellen Bader, Michelle Weiner-Davis, and Sue Johnson, and some 
business people and, uh, and people in media and decided that we would try to do something at the relationship educational level in the culture. And that led eventually to the idea that we would do a demonstration project in a city, see what we could do in a whole city. So we brought, <clears throat> uh, Helen and I decided we would uh, do that project and we came to Dallas where Helen has roots and I have roots. And we've been here now for two years doing a workshop called Safe Conversations. We're going to do a big workshop in February, on February the 13th, on Saturday. And we invite everybody to it uh, who would like to come. It's free. Um, and our goal is to make as big an imprint as we can in the city toward raising the joy index of the city by increasing the level of emotional safety through people learning how to have a conversation without um, hurting each other and without causing emotional any emotional uh, energy. So that's uh, sort of the big project. And Helen, you may want to add uh, something to it. Um, I don't think so. Just that um, um, we just, we've had, let's see, how many people we've had? About 3,200 people have been through the workshop. Uh, yeah, we've had... Um, 3,200 come to workshops. We've had 800 kids. And I, oh, yeah, I guess the thing to add is that there's so many things that have happened we didn't expect. And one noteworthy is that wherever we go, a few clinical assistants will come and they're curious about any innovations in the theory or and they'll give their time helping us with our workshops. We give 800 we give workshops in the Northeast for $850. And in Dallas, we for the weekend, and we and it's an 18-hour workshop. So we reduced that 18 hours to uh, about eight hours, and we, um, we give it uh, in Dallas. And clinical assistants have come to assist us at the eight-hour workshop. And, oh, my goodness, they fell in love with our couple's and have been donating close to a half a million dollars in in-kind contributions. They have set up practice groups for the couples. They're volunteering their time for their couples. They, we have five locations throughout Dallas where twice a month the couples can go and just practice the skills. And we've even begun creating a book, The Words of the Clinical Assistants, about why they're doing this. And the foundations in Dallas say that they've never seen the mental health community do anything for Dallas. Um, and, you know, like respond to a, a, an emergency or just uh, work on a project that might better Dallas. But basically, we are working with financially stressed couples and many couples that are either Spanish-speaking only or, um, or, or very broken English. And so we really feel like this helps the economics of the city, too, to keep that family together because they're struggling financially in so many other ways. So the mayor has gotten involved, and he is promoting this Valentine's weekend where we're going to um, actually have something Friday night, the workshop on Saturday, and Sunday morning, Houses of Worship. We're going to have their couples do a recommitment to their vows. So it's going to be a... Uh, a fun weekend if anyone would like to come.
Wow. Well, that sounds amazing. And I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing, not just with individual couples, but also on a cultural level. And, and I, I'm a wholehearted believer in the importance of um, creating more opportunities for people to learn how to have conscious, growth-oriented relationships and, and take things to to a level unlike we've really seen as a, as a species. So um, sounds like amazing, impactful work. And we will have links to um, your your normal website, harvillandhelen.com, and to safeconversations.org, as well as um, to your books, um, so that people can find out more information about you. And may, if they're local to Dallas, um, hopefully drop in on one of these things. And and I know you teach workshops around the country as well. So plenty of opportunities for you to get involved in Harvel and Helen's work. Um, Harvel Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really appreciate your time and your and your wisdom. And I look forward to chatting again. Thank you, Neil. We enjoyed visiting with you and look forward to that. Yes, very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.